Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, going to be having a chat about a fellow who we know today as a... Uh, it's a French name, so I'm, you know I'm going to stuff it up. Uh, Tara? I don't know. T-A-R-R-A-R-E. So, Tara. I'm just going to stick with Tara. And again, apologies to all the Francophone listeners out there who, who know that I'm going to I'm going to absolutely butcher it every turn. Anyway, this bloke, right, he is famous for being one of the most voracious and insatiable eaters that the world has ever seen. This bloke would eat anything, not just, you know, boring stuff like, you know, food, not just mediocre sort of attempts at some sort of historical significance by eating his entire body weight in meat. But I'm talking like garbage, wood, stone, even live animals. This bloke was he was, a, he was just absolutely mental when it came to food. Yeah, well, not even food, he, when it just came to eating. He had a couple of different jobs, um, if you could call them that, throughout his life. Uh, after being kicked out of home at a young age, uh, he was a performer before he joined the military as a soldier. And then he even had a, uh, a brief uh, a brief go as a spy for the uh, French Revolutionary Army. Uh, there's a lot to get across here. He went, he, uh, you know, but this poor bloke, he 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 went through life in a in a state of constant hunger, and he, he never really seemed to be able to eat his fill, no matter what, no matter how much food was chucked at him here. Um, now this led led to some pretty interesting things happening to him. Many of them very very funny. Uh, some of them quite sad, and a few things that were pretty dark as well. Um, his military career in particular is uh, is very bloody amusing, I can tell you. But uh, there's all sorts of stuff to chat about as well. Um, before we get to it, however, I uh, I just want to warn listeners with uh, delicate sensibilities or those who perhaps have children listening that. Uh, we're going to be talking. We're not just going to be talking about eating today. We're also going to be talking about the um, uh, the very natural and very necessary consequences of, of eating. Uh, so, if you're the sort of person who is uh, put off by a bit of the old poo chat, or if you've got kids listening, you might want to skip this one. And uh, kids, don't uh, don't forget to uh, sneak back and, and listen to this episode when uh, mum or dad isn't watching here, because there's lots of just terrific stuff about poo and bums and farts and all sorts of stuff like that. You're not going to want to miss it. So. Let's get to it. Have a chat about this poor bloke, Tyrone, all about what, what, what he was all about here. So, going all the way back now, all the way back to the 1770s here, probably about 1772 when Tyrone is born, at least when he's thought to have been born. I have to say, we're not sure. Um, we don't have rock solid about information about this bloke's younger years at all. We know that he was born sometime sometime around um, 1772 and some somewhere around Lyon. But that's about it. We actually don't even know his real name. Tara was apparently a nickname that was given to him, as we'll discuss a bit later on. But uh, even as little Tucker, he's going around, he's eating any, anything he can get his hands on. He's always hungry. He was. He was always wanting more Tucker. He was always wanting to, you know, fill his, fill his guts full of stuff here. In fact, when he was a teenager, he was known to have eaten his entire body weight in beef in one day, which is just staggering. There's no satisfying this kid. He eats and eats and eats, which is you know, normal enough for a teenager, but... I guess not normal to the point, you know, he's sifting through garbage just to find enough food every evening. So obviously, you know, he's a little bit, a little bit more than just sort of raiding the cupboard for, you know, a box of, box of shapes and a, and a couple of fruit roll-ups there. Anyway, unfortunately, his, uh, his voracious appetite, it actually meant, this is, you know, this is where the story is a little bit sad already. His, his parents had to kick him out. His parents had to boot him out of home well before he came out of, became of age. He, you know, he's a young teenager. And uh, they simply couldn't afford to feed him. They couldn't afford to feed him, so they booted him out of the house and they told him to jog to jog on, which is a pretty bloody heartless thing to do to your own kid, I reckon. Poor boy, he just wants a feed. Next thing he's out in his ass. It's no good at all here. No good at all. Anyway, 
he found his feet all right. And uh, our boy Teray, he's actually, he runs off with a group of rogues and vagabonds, mostly thieves and prostitutes they were. And, and he, he's cutting about with them for a while, you know, begging for food or he's nicking it when begging didn't work. And you've got to imagine, considering Teray's appetite, all that stealing and the begging is obviously never going to be enough to feed him. And sometime after this, uh, he actually ends up getting a job. Well, I don't know. A, a job is, it's a fair enough term. It was a job, you know, it was, and it was perfectly suited to his... Um, unique skill set, I guess, because what he did was this. He starts to work as the warm-up act for a travelling performer, some charlatan who would organise these big performances, you know, singing, dancing, all the rest of it, and then have his mates pick the audience's pockets while he was up on stage doing whatever, distracting them, you know, keeping them entertained. And Tarot was one of the people. He would he, he got a job as a support act. He'd stand out there and he'd try to draw a crowd. You know, you go through, you know, cities these days and there's the blokes there juggling or, you know, chucking balls around doing whatever they're doing, trying to get this crowd together there. And he's doing this by, you know, just standing in front of them and eating, well, basically absolutely, absolutely Anything, anything that was on hand. He would eat corks from wine bottles. He'd eat handfuls of, of stones and pebbles and stuff. He'd even eat live animals if they were forthcoming, which is, yeah, I don't even really want to talk about that, to be honest. But um, the, the other one that he always would do, the, the, the sort of the classic, the classic Tarah party trick here, is he would eat basket after basket of apples. He could fit a huge amount of apples into his mouth and he'd just chomp down these, you know, just whole baskets of apples, one after the other there like that, and amaze the crowd with his, his, his prodigious appetite here. It's just obviously no breaks, no breaks on the Tarah train when it comes to eating food. And it was perfect for him, this job. It was absolutely perfect it was because obviously, you know, not only is he sort of, you know, Properish situation of employment, you know. Not only is he earning himself a little bit here, he's also keeping his belly very full, very full indeed, because he's just eating things every day. So he's having a great time, having a great time. He's, you know, going around with his charlatan, going around, sort of putting on these performances here, there, and everywhere, um, moving around the place. But after a while, he decides he's had enough of it. He decides he's he's, he's had enough playing, you know, so, sort of second fiddle, not a second fiddle, I guess, second second chomper, second chomper to this other performer bloke, and uh, he's, he's sick of travelling around the here, here, there, and everywhere. So he decides to settle down a little bit, and he moves to Paris in 1788. At the, he's, He's only 16 or 17 at this at this stage. He's, he's only still a young fella here. Um, and it, because he wants to become a street performer. He wants to become a street performer in Paris. Obviously, the market for that very lucrative still is today. If you go there today, still choked with people who want you know want a couple of a couple of euros off you there like that. And he decides that he's going to uh, set himself up there and uh, you know in a little bit more of a permanent situation at least. Is not 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 so transitory. So doing well for himself in Paris. He's getting his chompers into all types of food, uh, and I also suppose all types of not food as well. He's uh, again having a great time. Now you might be wondering. What the bloody hell is going on with this bloke when it comes to his health and what he looks like? You know, because he's always hungry, always eating. He must have been enormous, you're thinking. You know, how is he even still alive if he's eating rocks and, you know, bits of... I mean, I was trying to think of a disgusting food, but then again, you know, he's French, so he's just he's eating bloody snails and frogs and bits of horse and absolutely loving it. It's normal for them, I guess, so yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, apparently, right, in terms of, you know, his health, how he looked... Right up to when he was working as a street performer in in Paris, you know, as a young fella there, he just looked like a normal fella. He looked like a normal, he was a bit skinny, if anything, which is just baffling to me. Like, he he, he wasn't overweight at all. He was, a bit, he was a bit on the skinny side there. Apparently, at 17 years of age, he was only 45 kilograms, which is just unbelievably, you know, it's such a small, you know, very, very small little bloke. Um and this didn't change. This actually didn't change, you know, despite the fact he's, he's going about, you know, scarfing anything remotely edible and, and a lot of stuff that also wasn't remotely edible. Um, he, he just he just doesn't put any weight on. He's skinny as a rake. It's absolutely ridiculous. 
But he did run into some medical problems while in Paris. And this actually gives a good opportunity to delve a little deeper into what these blokes sort of looked like and how, how we behaved here. So, so this is a good chance for us to sort of answer some of those questions as to, you know, as to what he, how, basically what his appearance was here. So despite seeming normal enough from a distance here, um, once you got a little bit closer to Tarah, you started to notice stuff about him that was a little, uh, a little odd. So first of all, his skin was super, super stretchy. Really, really stretchy it was. When he hadn't eaten anything for a while, it would hang loosely around his guts. It was actually so loose that he could pull it. He could grab hold of it and pull it around his entire waist like a belt. That's how sort of skinny and sorry stretchy his uh, his skin was there. And when he had eaten something, when he was all full up, full, full as a goog there, it would blow up like a beach ball, right? It'd have this massive, big, distended, enormous stomach with all the food inside it in there like that. So probably it looked a bit like a cartoon character, I'd imagine, there like that, dragging around this massive, big stomach. Unbelievable. But it wasn't just his abdomen that was all like this. It wasn't just his abdomen. The skin of his face was as loose as anything as well. Apparently, he could fit 12 apples in his mouth. As I said before, huge amount of apples. He could fit, you know, he, just, he used to do these things, put like huge numbers of apples or eggs or something in his mouth there like that to show off. Now, I've got a mate who can fit his fist into his mouth, which is quite something to see. I, I can assure you from personal experience, it's quite something to see, you know, a, a man put his fist inside his mouth. And I cannot begin to imagine what it would be like, you know, to see some of Taraz's party tricks there. You know, a dozen apples inside this bloke's mouth. He had a, a great big mouth, he did. He was huge, huge, big, big thing, gaping, uh, gaping great, big, great hole with very, very small lips. And uh, horribly stained teeth. Obviously, he hadn't been given the old uh, Colgate treatment there at all because, you know, he's eating every day. And he's, not, he's, not, he's not polishing his choppers like he should be, which is pretty gross. But when we're getting into the conversation of, uh, you know, Tarar and uh, sort of gross, disgusting personal hygiene, well, uh, that is just the tip of the iceberg, my friend, because Tarar absolutely stank. He smelt so bad, apparently, that being within sort of 10 or 20 metres of him was completely unbearable. He was always hot and sweaty, and it only got worse after he'd eaten something. Apparently, once he'd chomped his way through some food, he would start to smell even worse than before. His eyes would become bloodshot, Something, and, and then on top of this, something else would happen that is just the most amazing thing you can imagine, right? Think of this. You know how in cartoons, right? In cartoons, whatever else, when a character in comics or whatever, when a character's stinking, they show it sort of visually by using them little sort of wiggly lines that come off and they're like that. This is not a joke. After Tara had eaten a big meal, when he started stinking and sweating and all the rest of it, a sheen of vapor would start coming off him. This guy had actual, literal, real-life stink lines coming off him. How about that? Can you believe it? Unbelievable. This is a guy, he was so bloody disgusting. He's, he's sweating and stinking and all that sort of stuff there like that. When he ate, he had actual, real-life, visual, visible stink lines. Unbelievable. Anyway, while we're talking about how he smelt as well, it's um, it's worth mentioning the, uh, the other end of things here because, of course, you know, Everything that goes in eventually does have to come out one way or the other. And apparently, this bloke's farts and turds were something from another world. An actual medical doctor once described them as fetid beyond all conception. And when you think of the sort of thing that doctors are seeing, you know, on the reg, imagine how bad it must have been with Tara for someone to describe it like that. He farted like a racehorse that had drunk champagne. He was an expert in producing unrivaled intensity when it came to both volume and smell. In fact, people think that his name Tara might have actually come from a French expression at the time, bonbon Tara, which was was used apparently when describing huge big explosions. Imagine being named after your farts. Actually, no, actually, that'd be pretty good. I'd, I'd be, I'd be called the the silent assassin or something like that. I reckon. 
Um, but when it came, so the farts is just the beginning. That's that's where it starts here. Because when it became to when it came to um, uh, matters of a more solid nature, I tell you what, when this bloke busted a grumpy, he was. <laughs> He was squirting out the foulest, most rancid Havana omelets you can you can possibly imagine. Tara, he's going about bloody spray painting the porcelain with his high pressure systems. And from what I read, it seemed like he could, he could have done it. he could have done it through a screen door and not had any of the pieces get caught. <laughs> Okay, sorry. Oh, dear. He went around. He went around squirting like a country goose, he did. It was... (laughs) 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 Sorry. Sorry, this is a serious podcast. Sorry. He went about, he went about squirting like a country goose, he did, with the old green, green apple nasty. (laughs) 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 Okay, I'll get it, I'll get it it this time. I'll get it this time. All right. He went away. Oh, dear. He goes around squirting like a country goose. The old green apple nasties causing this causing this olfactory death zone after every single one of his dishonorable discharges. Oh. oh okay, alright. Alright, let's go. Okay with that. Alright, well. But in spite of all this, or perhaps maybe because of it, right? He never gained weight. He never gained weight. And as long as you pegged up your nose, it se- he seemed like a perfectly normal bloke, you know, just to look at him there like that. But obviously there is this sort of lingering smell because of all the stuff that we've just uh, we've just talked about in very serious and a very, very serious mature medical way there. Anyway, as I mentioned, he did run into some medical problems while he was in Paris. One day while he was putting one of uh, his enormously successful street performances on, he topples over in, in spasms of pain. Very, very bad look at his. He's obviously, not, he's obviously in, a, in a very bad way. So the crowd, they pick him up. And they rush him over to a nearby hospital where a, a, a doctor named Monsieur Giraud gave him uh, some powerful laxatives to treat what uh, he reckoned was an intestinal obstruction. And, and he was absolutely right, it was. He was all, he was all blocked up there like that. And uh, happily, this treatment was successful. Well, probably not happily for the, uh, the hospital cleaners afterwards, if you know, you're given this bloke who's already blasting off to the moon every now and again, uh, you know, a couple of powerful laxatives. But all the same, it worked and, and Tara was cured. He's, he's very happy about this. And um, I'll tell you this, when I read through, you know, the different sources about the sort of various topics that we cover here on half Ass History, obviously they're usually very dry. It's what you sort of come to expect from any written materials in the realm of history. It's not the most, not the most sort of, you know, scintillating area when it comes to the, the written word. So usually I have to juice them up a bit, make them a bit more palatable or engaging to listen to, that sort of thing, you know, add, add a bit of extra sort of colour and flair and that sort of stuff, while obviously staying well within the, within, within the boundaries of the truth there. But when reading about this incident on Wikipedia, this line had me in stitches. And I'll tell you what, 
I'm going to be out of a job if this sort of historical writing picks up because here's what happened to Tara afterwards verbatim from Wikipedia. This is actually what's written on the Wikipedia article. And I thought, geez, this, this, whoever wrote this, absolute comedic genius, listen to this. He made a full recovery and offered to demonstrate his act by eating his surgeon's watch and chain. Monsieur Gerard, the surgeon, was unimpressed by the offer and warned him that if he did so, he would cut Tara open to recover the items. To whomever wrote that utterly brilliant bit of prose, I salute you, my friend. What a masterpiece. Anyway, a few years after Tarah had moved to Paris, uh, in 1792 it was, uh, war broke out between France and the Holy Roman Empire, or more specifically, uh, the Habsburg monarchy along with Prussia. Now, this war became known as the War of the First Coalition, and it wasn't really one big war, but actually just a collection of smaller ones that all revolved around France. But that's not the important part here, not important to the uh, the story of Tarah here. What is important is that he, as a red-blooded Frenchman, joined up to fight more or less straight away, as you would expect. Now, also, as you would expect, he ran into problems straight away, immediately. He ran into problems because uh, there wasn't a whole lot of food kicking about while working as a soldier. Obviously, you get your army rations, and, and, and that is that. And these rations didn't even come close to the amount that he needed every day. Uh, so he used to barter for food with other soldiers by offering to do tasks and duties uh, for them in exchange for, you know, for parts of their rations as well. But even that wasn't enough here. So he started instead to rifle through piles of garbage, just looking for anything, anything at all he could stick in his gob there, anything at all he could possibly eat. Nothing he could do could satisfy his appetite. He was having a terrible time. And not long after he'd signed up, he, he was actually admitted to a military hospital. He was exhausted and sick and obviously, you know, under, I don't want to say undernourished, but I guess that's what he was. You know, he just wasn't eat, being able to eat enough here. So after he was, uh, you know, examined and, and checked out by the doctors, they put him on quadruple rations. Imagine how je- jealous all the other patients must have been there. But, of course, you already know that wasn't enough either. Tara, he took to eating leftovers from other patients, digging through all the hospital bins, just looking for food, and he even got caught sneaking into the apothecary's stores to eat the poultices that were stored there. It got so bad that hospital staff had to physically restrain him when food was around because he couldn't control his hunger. He ended up provoking the interest of, uh, of two blokes here. Number one, Baron Percy, the hospital's uh, chief surgeon, and another doctor who took a strong interest in uh, in this case here called Dr. Corville, right? Now, Percy and Corville, they started to run experiments on Tara. One time, they uh, one, one, thing, one of the things they did was they, they had a table set with this enormous meal that was enough for like 15 people, and then they accidentally forgot to restrain him, right, to see what he would do. Now, sure enough, he goes straight over to the table here and immediately starts chucking the food straight into his gob. Down red lane it goes. He got through two enormous meat pies, 15 litres of milk and a bunch of salt and grease that was lying around as well. And then went straight into a food coma. He just fall, he fell asleep straight at the table just like that, right? And, they, and these, these doctors are looking at, how has this bloke managed to eat so much? It's unbelievable. Is there, is there, he's got bloody hollow legs. How is he fitting it all in, right? Percy and Corville, they did, they also did other tests, which, to be honest, we're not going to spend too much time talking about because they're very, very sad and very nasty, where they would offer 
a variety of live animals for Tara to eat, and, and he did, and apparently he had a real thing for snake meat, which is quite interesting. But, you know, he had all sorts of animals, including one time an entire eel, apparently without even chewing, which I, yeah, I, again, don't want don't to spend too much time talking about that because it's very sad. So let's crack on with the story here. The military wanted Tara back. They wanted him to come back in service. Uh, so they get to the hospital and they, well, they want to find out when, he, when he's, uh, you know, going to be up and about and ready, to, ready for duty once again here. But Percy and Corville, they, you know, they've gone deep on this bloke here, and they're, and they're not ready to give him up just yet. They want to keep, uh, they want to keep sort of researching him and, and seeing and finding out more stuff about him, you know, running these experiments, whatever else. So they put their heads together, and they figure out a way to sort of keep him under their, uh, not their control, but you know, at least under under their oversight here. What so what they do? Uh, Corville, he goes to General Alexander, oh, uh, another French name. I'll, I'll do my best, Alexandre de Bourgogne's. I don't know. Sorry. Anyway, he's the bloke in charge, this de Bourgogne's, right? And he suggests, uh, sorry, uh, Corville suggests to him and says, listen here, mate, Tara could be the perfect spy. I reckon he's the perfect the perfect candidate to become a secret courier for the Revolutionary Army, right? And uh, de Bourgogne says, well, what are you talking about? How, you know, how is this bloke going to ferry around documents? What's, what's so special about him? And Corville suggests, he goes, what we'll do, Right, Tara is going to be the perfect person to smuggle documents across enemy lines because what he's going to do is he's going to eat them and then later he's going to sh- he's going to retrieve them from his he's going to look uh, you know don't don't worry about it too much but basically what I'm saying here is he's he's going to be able to get you documents to where they need to go right so you know we've all heard of international smugglers and drug mules and that sort of thing these days but uh, Corville's idea obviously pretty groundbreaking well well ahead of its time this would mean that. Uh, even were Tara captured, no amount of searching would find any. Se- well, I say no amount. You know, you, you sort of you get a butcher's cleaver and sort of anything's fair game. But you know, no amount of reasonable searching was going to find any any secret documents here. So the general, he listened to this plan. He sort of goes, "Yeah, all right, mate. Bit of a weird one, but sure. Let's let's uh, let's give it a crack here." And he agrees to test Tara out as a potential courier. So Corville arranges a demonstration for him. Corville puts a document inside a sealed wooden box, which he then gives to Tara to eat. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Down red lane it goes. And to further show the general and his staff just what this bloke is capable of, Corville then wheels out a wheelbarrow with 15 kilograms of raw bull's lungs and livers for Tara to eat. Tara is beside himself with joy, goes to town on the raw meat. Disgusting. Right there in front of everyone. Absolutely gross. Uh, but after that, just a waiting game for two days, as it turns out, before... Uh, Tara blasts off with another bog naughty, and uh, there, amongst the wreckage, is the wooden box. Und- uh, I was going to say undamaged. I mean, on a psychological level, probably extremely damaged, but when it, you know, at least as a physical box, relatively undamaged, as I say. So, document still inside, still legible, and uh, General de Bourgogne is uh, is ecstatic. He signs off on the plan to turn Tara into a spy. He's loving it. He's thinking, okay, this is going to be fantastic. He did have one reservation, however, nothing to do with Tara's ability to eat, obviously beyond reproach. No one's questioning that. He was a bit concerned about this bloke's mental game, as he wasn't sure that Tara had the right sort of psychological disposition to be a good spy. Uh, and as a result, Tara's first mission was to sneak into enemy territory to a place near Neustadt where a Prussian colonel was being held prisoner. Now, Tara was told that he would be smuggling documents of great importance, top secret military documents they were, they were, but in reality, they weren't. The message was basically just, did you get this? And if you did, you know, what, what's going on, mate? How are you? 
Um, and this was because de Bohne didn't yet trust Terrar with important military secrets. As I said, he didn't think he was of the right sort of psychological disposition for it. So this was just a test, and it meant that if he got caught and if the message got found out, he wouldn't be give, you know, giving away uh, any, any big secrets or anything else like this. And this decision proved to be very wise indeed, as you'll discover very shortly. So... The mission is all set up. One night, Tara sets off, all dressed up like a Prussian peasant and, you know, stinking like one too, you'd have to imagine. Um, and he crosses over into Prussian territory uh, from uh, from the French side of things, uh, trying to, you know, act normal and not, not attract any attention. But you'd have to think that people could probably, you know, smell him coming a mile away here. And, and they started to take interest in him when they saw him, uh, you know, sort of shuffling about, trying to avoid their uh, their notice there. And uh, unfortunately for our mate Tarah, he was found out very, very quickly indeed. He was hours and hours away from Neustadt when he was uh, discovered uh, as a French spy. And the main reason for this, of course, is, you know, he's trying to, you know, despite trying to pass himself off as a, as a Prussian peasant, he couldn't speak a word of German. So the, the disguise fell apart pretty quickly there. So some of the locals there in Prussia, they alert some soldiers who capture Tarah and they drag him back to the headquarters for questioning. And obviously he's searched and nothing is found. Most suspicious. What is this French bloke doing, you know, behind enemy lines with no secret messages, nothing to indicate that he's a spy or anything else there like that. Very, very suspicious indeed. But Tarah also keeping Sturm about all this as well. He's not admitting anything, holding it down very well indeed. So it looks like maybe he is cut out for, you know, to be a spy. He's doing very well indeed. Even when the Prussians bring out the whip and start belting, you know, belting him around with it. Poor old Tarah, he's getting, he's getting, a, he's getting a, a full-on whipping there. He doesn't give in. He holds his ground. He doesn't say a thing. Eventually, the Prussians have had enough to try to get this, you know, weird frog mouth stinker to spill the beans. So they uh, they drag him to their commander, a bloke named uh, General Zugli, right? German name. Don't even worry about it. Got them one. They got got them all covered off. Easy, very easy indeed. Once again, he's questioned. Once again, he keeps his big mouth shut. So they chuck him into the prison. And uh, unfortunately, you know, again, not a very nice part of the story. They continue to torture him. And uh, eventually. After about 24 hours of this, our brave hero, he finally breaks. And, uh, you know, this poor bugger, he spills the beans and he and he does he tells him everything. He tells him the whole plan, you know, he says that he's got top secret, highly important uh, military uh, documents up there when the sun, where the sun don't shine. And in a typically German fashion, the Prussians work out a very efficient and very pragmatic solution. They chain him to a latrine and wait and wait and wait for further details to emerge and it is not too long before we've got a code brown and Tara he gets on with his second favorite activity in the world and uh, again uh, you know just about blast himself off into uh, into outer space there as he uh, as he dances the mexican foxtrot and in amongst the ravages of the hot snakes is of course uh, the little wooden box and general Zergli, after i guess washing it off you'd 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 imagine he opens it up. He's hoping to in, in, uncover the, you know, the valuable military intelligence that uh, lies inside. But instead, of course, he finds this bloody rubbish that De Bo- that uh, De Bohanes had written here, and he is furious. He's, fu- I mean, he's put, he's had to put up with a lot of crap here, both literal and figurative, to try to get his hands on this. And it's obviously a huge, big waste of time. And he's so angry that he nearly executes poor old Tarahi. Our mate, he's dragged off the bog and straight to the gallows where the executioner puts a noose around his neck, right? Imagine that. I mean, as you'd expect, poor Tarahi is weeping and crying pitifully at this point. He's begging for mercy. He's just seconds from death. He never meant to get into anything like this. He just wanted something to eat, this poor bastard. And thankfully, the Prussians, they either have mercy on him or the whole thing was a you know big stitch up for a bit of a laugh and given that Prussia went on to become modern Germany, I'll let you decide which one of them is the more likely. 
Um, and they let him down from the gallows. They give him one last thrashing for good measure. They cart him back to the French border and dump him there to go on his way. So pretty bloody close shave for our poor old mate there. And you can imagine it, aff- it affected him pretty bloody strongly. So strongly, in fact, that when he got back to his superiors to report what had happened, he begged never to have to do any kind of espionage ever again. And given how things had gone, given how he'd, you know, rolled and capitulated once the Prussians had nabbed him, it is not surprising that the French decide, yeah, nah, look, let's uh, let's give him a spell, eh? But here's where things get a little sad for poor old Tarara. Unfortunately, his, his story is not a happy one at the end of things, as, as we'll discover very, uh, very shortly here. He goes to Percy and Corville, and uh, quite obviously at the end of his tether, this poor young man, he, he begs them, he begs them to cure him of his insatiable hunger. He says, I'll do anything, I'll any treatment at all that you, you, you suggest, I'll do it because I'm sick and tired of living my life like this. The poor bloke, he's going around absolutely honking, he can't stop eating, he's always hungry, make you bloody miserable at wood. I'm surprised he got as far as he did while still staying sane, to be honest. I'm never, you know, able to feel properly satisfied or anything. The poor, the poor bloke. So... He goes to these doctors and they agree they'll try to cure him and Percy takes uh, sort of takes over the experiments at this stage uh, trying to find something that's going to suppress this poor bastard's appetite. Percy gives him laudanum, he gives him tobacco pills, he has him on wine vinegar for a while but nothing works. Percy even gave him for some reason huge amounts of soft boiled eggs. I don't know what the reasoning was there. I mean, I, you know, I like a nice boiled egg although I suppose if I was forced to eat sort of hundreds of them one after the other. I'd, I'd, I'd never want to eat anything again. So maybe that was the idea there. Anyway, of course, none of this works. And poor old Therese is hungry as ever. Um, Percy tried to regulate his diet as well and control how much he ate. But Therese obviously couldn't help himself. And uh, he'd keep sneaking out of the hospital uh, to find food. He would rummage through gutters and bins outside the butchers. He's looking for, you know, bits of offal that have been chucked away. Or he'd be fighting, you know, stray dogs for scraps of food in the garbage heaps. It's all very, very sad. I feel very sorry for this poor bloke. And uh, after this, I'm sorry to say, things things go from sort of sad to actually quite dark. And um, I'm, I'm actually not going to get into it. I'm, I'm, it's way, way too full on for, you know, what is supposed to be a lighthearted podcast. And if you want to know the ins and outs of what happened after, you know, after he returned and, and after he was on this regimen here with, uh, with, with Baron Percy here, you're going to have to look it up for yourself. I'm sorry if that seems like a cop out, but it is really nasty stuff and I'm just not comfortable chatting about it here. So, so we're just going to press on with the story. The long and the short of it is Taraz's inc- increasingly unhinged behaviour as his hunger took over his life, actually meant that he was eventually forced out of the hospital and chased away by the staff because some of the stuff that you know he, that he was imagined to have done as a result is pretty bloody monstrous. And 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 after having been chased away like this, after having been you know booted booted out and uh, and sort of run out of town, he disappeared. Disappeared from history for the next four years. We've got no idea what he got up to. I mean, we got a, an idea of. I mean, some of the stuff that he got up to. We can presume he spent. A lot of the time, chomping his way through vast quantities of food, that much seems like you know, a safe enough, uh, enough assumption. But we don't know for certain uh, for what happened until 1798, when Baron Percy got a message from another doctor, Monsieur Tessier, in a hospital in Versailles, saying that the hospital had a patient that was specifically requesting to see Baron Percy. He wanted, he wanted to chat to Percy there. And intrigued by this message... Percy made the trip down to Versailles to find, of course, that none other than poor old Tarar was lying there in a hospital bed, crook as a dog, so bloody sick. He was so, so sick, he was. 
Now, Tarah told Percy that two years ago he had swallowed a golden fork and, and that was what was making him sick and asked Percy to find a way to remove it from inside him. But Percy, unfortunately, he knew that uh, that wasn't the case and he could very, very clear, clearly see that uh, you know it was, the situation was, was very different and also very grim. Tarah was dying. He had tuberculosis, he had very, very bad advanced tuberculosis, and uh, he was heading towards an, towards an early death as the disease took a stronger and stronger hold of him here. And of course, at this stage, there just wasn't anything that Percy or, or anyone really could do for poor old Tarah here. He was only 26 years old, and about a month after Percy's visit, his condition only worsened and only got worse and worse and worse until he's in, a, in such a bad way that he actually died. He finally died again at a very, very young age, only 26, they estimate his age. Of course, we don't know for sure, but again, very, very young man. But if you thought he had smelt bad when he was alive, wow, 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 it got worse when he, after he died. No one could be in the same room as his body, as the air was basically unbreathable due to the foul stink that emanated from it. His corpse was so disgusting, so foul and putrid that the other doctors in Versailles didn't want to dissect it. But... Tessier did. Maybe you just wanted to find that bloody golden fork, mate. Worth obviously worth a fortune. Golden fork inside him. Whew, imagine that. So, Tessier opened him up, had a look inside, and oh my goodness me, what an absolute horror show it was. Taraz's corpse had started rotting as soon as he died, and inside it was all gross and disgusting and and fetid and just just horrible, right? But interestingly, right? Interestingly, Taraz's mouth and gullet. This is what was sort of discovered as part of this, uh, this autopsy. His mouth gullet was so big that if you opened up his mouth, you could see right down into his stomach when you looked down his throat. And his jaws were able to stretch way, way open like a, like a bloody snake. His stomach was huge as well. It was all stretched up, taking, uh, taking up most of his abdomen. And his liver and his gallbladder were also weirdly oversized. So this bloke was obviously, you know, medically unique. He was, he was like nothing anyone had seen before. But unfortunately, the investigation was never properly concluded. This this autopsy, this uh, you know, the, this dissection was uh, was never properly finished because the smell became too powerful for even Tessier to put up with, and so he gave up before very much longer. But it did prove something. Prove something very important. Tara's condition wasn't psychological. No, no way could you hope to claim that it was a psychological thing here. It was definitely, definitely a physical thing. And even today. We don't really know. We don't really understand what was going on with Tarah or exactly what, you know, to diagnose him with. Condition, there are obviously conditions today such as polyphagia that we, you know, that we sort of have a, a, a some, something of an understanding of, uh, of there. But we don't really, you know, what th- this was such an advanced form of that, if it was polyphagia here, that it baffles doctors even today what was going on with this fella. Poor old Tarah. I mean, if you think about it, really, very, very sad story for him here because he was condemned to a life of unending hunger. This poor bloke. And his tragic story has, you know, a mystifying ending to it because not only do we not really know what was up with this fella and, you know, why he had the appetite he had, there's another mystery that was never solved due to the autopsy being cut short. That golden fork was never found. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Tara or Tara. Again, 
A thousand apologies there for the uh, for the you know for the Frank of oh, just for general people listening. I mean, it can't be fun listening to me mispronounce every single name under the sun. But you know that's the way it goes. I'm sorry about that. Anyway. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. I, uh, I certainly, I mean, I mean, I don't know if you picked up on it, but I certainly very much enjoyed uh, reading about this bloke and, and and sharing his story with you as well. So I hope you got something out of it. But that's it for another week. So it's time for all the boring, usual uh, housekeeping nonsense to close out the show. Halfasthistory.net, that's the website. You can find the contact form there. People getting in touch with you every week. I do appreciate the emails. Um, and I can confirm for you that there are now... Uh, Rock solid plans uh, in motion to get half our history merchandise underway. And of course, the first recipients of that merchandise will be all the Patreon members. So uh, I'll be reaching out to people. I'll be t- getting in touch with people in the coming months once I've got an idea of exactly how things are going to work. Um, but it will be available for purchase and I'll be sending stuff out to pa- loyal Patreon members, of course. So if you want to uh, if you want to snag some of the merchandise on the cheap right now, best way to do it, sign up for the Patreon, of course, because I'll be sending things out to all, all, of, my, uh, all of my loyal uh, followers there and, and thank you so much to those people who have been you know patiently and uh, and and uncomplainingly chucking me money hand over fist for months on end for absolutely no reason so i really really do appreciate that and i'm gonna i'm gonna try to re- reward the, uh, the the kindness you've showed me in, in the coming weeks and months with some uh, with some merch and if you've got ideas for merch please let me know thinking at this stage will there be some t-shirts maybe some mugs i'll have a look at what else is feasible and how it's going to work but uh, i'll be uh, i'll be chucking that your way uh, before very much longer so uh, yeah please let me know if you've got any thoughts there uh if you want to subscribe to the show best way to do that of course is again through the website links there for itunes and android and spotify and if you could do me a favor just let people know that the show exists and uh you know if you've got friends with particularly pure old senses of humor this is definitely the one to uh to get them hooked you know this is definitely the one to uh (laughs) to get them on board because uh wow 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 and if you're not a fan of poo chat well i apologize and you know hopefully there won't be too much well hopefully there will hopefully we'll have a little bit more poo chat before very much longer because it was very very good fun anyway that's enough of that for another week We've got a, 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 a you know usual uh, question here posed on Reddit to uh, to close out the show. We've obviously, had a lot of chat about food, a lot of chat about hunger this uh, this week, and so a very pertinent question here asked by Reddit historian Ninel Five Six, who wants to know why do historians call nineteenth century Austria Hungary? Hungary.